<laughs> Hello, Jack. Hello, Dan. <laughs> Hello, the listener. Hello, dear listener, dear royal listener. Um, I remembered something, Dan, that I wanted to tell you back in our Alan Dulles CIA episode, oh, okay. which is a long time ago, but it was much more pertinent not just because that's what we were talking about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever it was, but also because Prince Philip had just died. I came across something in doing the research for that, which was a quote that Prince Philip said at one point, which was something along the lines of, I've always wanted to go to the Soviet Union. Um, I've heard it's a really fascinating place, even though those bastards killed half my family, <laughs> which I think is awesome. <laughs> it's just like, all right, these are all the exact same people. Very yeah. cool. Very cool indeed. RIP to a real one. Um, Dan, how you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm very well. Yes, I'm quite well. Yes, um, two T's deep. Two, <laughs> <laughs> one T T T deep. Soon well, to be second. Tough. Soon to yeah, second <laughs> T on the way. I have to lean away from the microphone before slurping. And, yeah, you're just saying it's very I... British ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it could be anything that I'm drinking. It's true. It's yeah. true. But now the listener knows no, that's tea, ladies no, and gentlemen. I think they probably could have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Only tea. It's always tea. Um, you know, you know how I've been going on about um, <laughs> the eighteenth of May, which is also oh, yeah. St. Dunstan's Day. All right, sure, St. Dunstan's. This is a gardening. Sure. This is a gardening related. Um, <laughs> A piece of trivia, uh, just to give the uh, give the audience a bit of a warning. Well, it was yesterday. It was indeed yesterday. Yeah, mm. a friend of mine has a little sort of French um, uh, poem, or I don't know, nursery rhyme or something, uh, which advocates the eighteenth of May as the, I guess it's a, a day when one ought to expect no more frosts, basically. So that's okay. the day in which you go out and you plant all your sort of like. Um, Temperature sensitive uh, seedlings that you've been carefully mm. cradling in, uh, in in the in the warmth of your house, um, and <laughs> so I've told I've talked about this a few times, and I've told Jack about it once or twice. And one time he came at me was like, "Well, I've not heard Charles Downey talk about it, so it can't possibly be a thing." I throttled Dan when he told me something <laughs> at gardening advice that had nothing to do with Charles Downey. Yeah. Um, but I was I was watching a Charles Darwin video the, the other day, basically, and he made reference to something called the Ice Saints. The Ice Saints. Ice Saints. All right, tell me more. Um, and so interest. I was a bit like, "Oh God, please, please let <laughs> Saint Dunstan be one of said Ice Saints." Um, but no, no. The, <laughs> the Ice Saints. I've got them written. I've got them here. Oh, the cool. Ice Saints. Saint Mamatus. <laughs> That's not real. Saint Pancras. Okay. And St. Cervantius have their um, their their saints' days on May 11th, May 12th, and May 13th. Okay. Which was some days last week. Okay. <laughs> um, there are three days which are um, traditionally, and I guess like in the eyes of science, probably erroneously, <laughs> predicted to always correlate with um, cooler weather. Oh, apparently, the, apparently, according to the Wikipedia on this on this thing, apparently, um, some pupils of Galileo sort of charted this. It's the instance of this event mm. over multiple years, kind of thing, such that it was believed to be good science that <laughs> these days always co- correlated with uh, uh, sort of like 
uh, turn in the weather. We for say? the worse. For the worse. Interesting. But it's also meant to be a period of time when you traditionally get the last frost. Mm. So um, mm. there we go. Oh, interesting. That got somewhat contradictory. <laughs> <laughs> but interesting. But the ice scenes. The, the it's like pretty metal, right? <laughs> it's pretty like, sick. It's it like, could be like a Man of War album or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like a Robert Hammer Howard book. Or something. Okay. <laughs> That's sick. The Ice Saints. So All right. Go. Conan there and the Ice Saints. That's pretty yeah. cool. Um, well, it has been colder recently, so that makes sense. Um, it's been raining a lot. It's barely gotten warm. This, yeah, exactly. I know. Jeez. Um, we've, no, we've had some traditionally summer weather. Yes. Thunderstorms. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thunderstorms and hail. Um, well, yeah, I went, I went to the allotment the other day because I planted some squash, uh, perhaps on the 16th or 17th. I was, a l- I jumped the gun a little bit, um, and I saw that one of them got eaten by slugs. So I kind of was just like, I'm not going to come back for like at least a day or two. I'll probably go back it's after like morning, this. morning, is it? Yeah. Like, it is. Jack's traditional period of morning. Is <laughs> it is. I was very <laughs> frustrated. Six hours away from the allotment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. As long as the potatoes do fine and the beans do fine. I'm, it's all good. Mm. Ice Saints come at me. Mm-hmm. You see what you can do. Yeah. I must say Jack's beans are looking <laughs> mighty fine. My beans are looking good, I yeah. think. Yeah. We've not had a broad bean update in a while. <laughs> broad bean update. For good reason. That, 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 this that is, tradition got quite tired. Yes. But I will say, this is episode 31 yeah. of a weekly of a weekly <laughs> series. My broad beans are like two feet tall. Yeah. It, like, supposedly, they've got a lot of nutrition. Great for you. Delicious. All this stuff. But like, oh my God, I planted these yeah. things so long yeah. ago. <laughs> There's still flower. I mean, yeah, like, both Jesus. of our, bro- our, our our patches of broad beans are still flowering. <laughs> yeah. no, no beans in sight, and they're in sight. yeah, they're 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 lucky if they're over a foot tall. Well, mine are about <laughs> a foot tall. Yours are a bit tall. Mm. So yeah, we're a long way off being able to report eating actual broad beans. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. It'll probably jump the gun on it, and they'll be poisoned or something like that. Who knows? Poisoned by the bean. What a way to go. <laughs> it's you. Oh, well, I suppose if you're killed by it, you can't learn from it. But <laughs> learn it's from all valuable, all valuable uh, learning. <laughs> um, Dan, mm. update. Lars Lee, how's it going? Listening to the book. Still good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good work. All right, good. Good. Just checking in, checking in on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Last week I made several references to um, Lars Lee's Lenin rediscovered, and uh, it's on my brain. Have you rediscovered Lenin? Well, I don't know whether I ever knew Lenin. So, (laughs) Lenin, I hardly knew you. Yeah, Yeah, she got to that one point. I know Mike Duncan on, uh, again, Podcast Taboo, referencing another podcast, but I know he, for his, like, Lennon episodes, especially for, like, the 1905 episodes, he cited Lars Lee a lot. And I was like, wow, cool. (laughs) I was like, right on. Very cool. Um, So, yeah, should get around to that one day. Hmm. Yeah, dead shrugging. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we won't. It's definitely worth everybody listening to. Yeah. Everybody go and listen to Cosmonauts. Um, yeah. Very excellent audio book version of it. Mm. Yeah. Or, or, or you can or you can go and trudge through the like 800 pages or so <laughs> if you like. I mean, I'd much rather have um, have someone else read it to me. Yeah. 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 I agree. Um, all right. Well, the Bean update, the Lennon update, all is well. All is well. Um, should we just get into it? I was, I'm pretty excited about this episode. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. really enjoyed this. Um, Dan, hit us with it. What did we read? This week I did a little bit of uh, Googling around. <laughs> I, uh, I Googled Hal Draper. <laughs> I 
I'm always I, saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a meme at this point. Um, partly um, inspired by a desperate requirement to find things to read for the podcast. <laughs> partly inspired by a reference that appeared in said uh, Lasley book, Lenny Rediscovered. <laughs> um and I came across this essay, The Two Souls of Socialism. And I thought, hey, that sounds quite good. Podcast material fodder. Yeah. It uh, sounds like an introductory text. It's about 30 the pages long. The kind of 30 pages long, which is about our max. Like, it's, 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 it might give us some, um, some of the basics, which is what we need. We need more basics. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, in the week Jack and I were discussing it and Jack said it was about time we talked about what socialism was so we could kind of like tick that one off the list it's kind of been um, kind of been floating around we don't even need to talk about it check it off the list we know what it is we figured it out we figured out what socialism maybe is maybe we need to maybe we need to cover that from an introductory standpoint whether mm. that will happen today I do not know but as as everybody knows it's um, it's all a process it is all it's a process just an unfolding dialectic guys like <laughs> watch it before your eyes watch the dialectic unfold um so, yes, and I think we both enjoyed it. What did you think, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was interesting kind of like reading this after the Miliband because I since then have had the question of as his last chapter or something, was possibly last chapter again, can never remember the actual chapters of the Ralph Miliband book. But um, uh, <laughs> I think it may well have been chapter six unless one was not included in the introduction. Oh God, in here we go. Here five. we go. Oh my God. Um, but in which he posed the question of reform versus revolution, right? And so that question has been going around a lot in my head. Um, but here, Hal Draper seems to pose another set of form of that question, maybe a different question altogether, which is top-down socialism or bottom-up socialism. Um, and I found that, I suppose, refreshing, almost like, to, to a certain extent, maybe you can't really compare those two questions, but um, refreshing, um, love coming at uh, all this stuff from um, a slightly more lefty perspective on the, on the leftist scale. And, um, yeah, I suppose refreshing is a good way of putting it. And I, I really thought that this was going to be him defining what socialism was to him. And that's really only a little bit of it. It's mainly like a historical uh, analysis of different attempts at socialism, air quotes. Would you say that's fair? That is certainly fair, yeah. There's definitely... There's certain amounts of the question, what is socialism, if you want to try and sort of pass them out, but it's definitely not like, it's not a bullet point manifesto <laughs> in any way. In some ways, it's more of an answer to the question, like, what is it to be a socialist? Yeah. Or, well, I mean, he's describing two different, um, well, if, I mean, if socialism is um, a aspired to alternate mode of production kind of thing. Mm then it's almost like it's a tactical question in some ways. Like, how do you go about getting to the sort of like, um, I don't know, the, the temple on the hill that is socialism kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. How, do you, how do you get to that point? Which is the, which is the uh, what's the best way to go about it? Yeah. And you, he, he strikes upon these two points of like, from below and from above. Yeah. Yeah, and it was interesting too, I would say like, him using the word socialism as well and not like communism or anything like that because it's like he's definitely the distinct okay maybe that's something that we should talk about eventually in this episode is 
should we even be making a distinction between socialism and communism? And if so, if so what it is. But um, at the end, that this whole thing was bordering, as I said to you right before this, on manifesto status. And it kind of was like a little bit of a manifesto. But at the end, there was like a definite manifesto, which I imagine was like the back page of the like little uh, pamphlet or whatever, um, where they talk about their brand of socialism, right? And so like at the beginning, I guess, he kind of like tries to differentiate what he's talking about when he talks about socialism, which differs from... Kind of like the communism of his, the communism of his day, which we should say was this 1966, I think, something like that. In the 60s, we'll just say, I hope that's correct. Um, Google it. Uh, the communism of his day was like they made socialism more of a negative than a positive, which I thought that was a really interesting distinction. As a like, socialism is simply not capitalism. It's simply getting rid of uh, capitalism and. Uh, we'll kind of get to why he doesn't like that in a bit, but he also says that like social democrats have just completely abolished socialism from their manifestos, period. Like when you see a social democrat walking around, perhaps this is why we would not call someone like Bernie Sanders a socialist, if anyone, uh, you're kind of wondering about that, um, is because they're kind of, social democrats are kind of doing their best to keep private property. And that's definitely not socialism in my eyes. So however we want to make the distinction between like communism, socialism, whatever, um, it kind of seems in in the vein that you and I have been discussing these phrases to kind of be one and the same because he kind of makes communism out to just be like Stalinism because that's kind of like, you know, the era that he's writing in, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he has a, 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 several good phrases for describing Stalinism. <laughs> yeah. I think at one point he uses the phrase Stalinoid. <laughs> yeah, he did. I like, I like, I didn't laugh, but like air audibly went through my nose. I was like, Stalinoid. <laughs> um, as you were talking there, what I was thinking about, as sort of provoked by this idea of what the difference is between socialism and communism, um, was that to some extent, um, and and sort of reformer evolution as well to some extent, like the. The idea of a former revolution, all the sort of tactical distinction and difference, and also the distinction between socialism and communism to some extent, uh, were determined by sort of specific points in history. And I sort of feel like by by um, introducing these new um, pieces of terminology, and also by sort of sidelining certain characters and foregrounding certain others, mm. he's sort of like telling a different story of this history one which sort of like feels like it overlooks some neck nexal points that's sure. the piece Nexi. of phraseology nexus that makes sense <laughs> nexus, nexus <-esque> point <laughs> um like the the sort of the, the split between um reformist social democracy and communism i.e. the communist parties of the third international kind of like that split kind of disappears to some extent um and basically because by taking some of those um by taking some of those sort of like polar dichotomies and taking them out of certain histories what you get is this sort of like um different narrative where certain things certain ideas that feel specific to certain points in history actually are revealed to have a much longer legacy kind of yeah, thing yeah, so yeah. like um the stalinist turn um in the soviet union has this analog in 
uh, like the Fabians say, mm-hmm. which has this analog in almost like the oh, what's he called? There are so many names in this, I've just forgotten them all. Like, so it just leaks out of my mind. It has this analog with Ferdinand Lasalle, who also has this analog with Saint Simon kind of thing. So, yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. can sort of track these ideas all the way through, and so any deviation or any great schism is kind of like loses its significance or its power almost because like everything seems to have an analog in the history of the socialist movement such that this distinction between um from above and from below yeah see works very well as like a a, a, a meta or a key to explain all of this history i guess yeah, it, it yeah, it definitely does. But then it's funny because then you look at the people who he says are like for real from below people, and it's a little like, well, really? <laughs> like that's okay. I get what you're saying. They're def- some of them are people who didn't get a whole lot done. <laughs> so oh, I see. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose just to explain really quickly the from, be- fr- from below up from below down from above. <laughs> Jesus. He's basically saying, this is kind of an idea we came across in the Maddox, right? Where it's like anything that reeks of like imposing its will on the working class, top down. That's kind of like bringing socialism upon these people. I like his phrase, educational dictatorship. Mm. It's like almost like enlightened socialist despotism, kind of. He would probably think of it like that. But then there's also like the bottom up, which is like the working class just figuring it out, creating their own institutions, doing it for themselves. One of those people he says is William Morris, which we were both saying that uh, at the beginning was surprising because he goes through so many different people in so many different time periods in this essay and just trashes everybody that he comes across and then he gets to william morris and he's like william morris pretty good <laughs> it's like really <laughs> william morris okay like i love william morris like he's a cool you know rode around in a suit of armor and pretended like he was a knight it's a pretty cool guy but like wow i didn't expect that i didn't know that now i understand why he appeals to you <laughs> exactly exactly Dude, yeah, I've always struggled with... Uh, well, I, I would have... If you'd have asked me before reading this, I'd have just lumped William Morris together with the other utopian socialists yeah. who he basically has no time for at all. Mm. Um, and I don't know what my general disposition toward William Morris has been. I, maybe, uh, like, he's someone I want to like. He's well But maybe, yeah, maybe the way, like... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's the two sides of my soul where it's like, <laughs> am I willing to embrace, like sort of quaint merry england <laughs> britishness yeah. or do i like am i repulsed by it <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you mean i know exactly what you mean it's like designing wallpaper to have framed in your home yeah is that socialism yeah <laughs> but i think we can get on board i mean it's quite a nice policy like it, it, it does it does seem to cross the may, maybe maybe the seemingly problematic thing about William Morris, right, is that it's very... <laughs> obviously, the, the arts and craft movement and the handicraft movement is very yeah. kind of like... It, it, well, it comes across as a bit parochial, but also yeah. um, it, it, it sort of... It, you, you Maybe you can misinterpret it as like small-scale production, which is what it is, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but he's not advocating a small-scale production that like Proudhon might have ex- exemplified, right? It's not a small-scale production that's like small economic units in a kind of like market socialism uh, vein. Mm. But maybe that's the way it's quite easy to read it kind of thing. Mm. But if I suppose if you can if you can take away those elements of it, mm. then we're in, we're in favour of like <laughs> making nice things and we're in favour of having nice things. <laughs> we like and nice we're things. in favour of like 
skilled labor and sort yeah. of fulfilling work and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah what's not to what's not, what's to, not like? to like? I'll, pr- I'll okay, I'll protect William Morris. I like William Morris a lot. Just for this whole reason, it's like he wasn't a Marxist theorist. He wasn't like someone. Uh, Joe Picot describes him as a Marxist. No, sorry, he, I don't mean to like. Sure, but I mean, he's not. Sure. He's not in the canon of Marxist theorists. Yeah, exactly. He's not like he's not out here writing about value theory. You know what I mean? He's like just kind of a guy who like very well intentioned, liked you know the Middle Ages, liked wallpaper, liked a good thing. And I don't know, maybe he's more of a cultural theorist than anything. But yeah. it's like it's just, I don't know. He's like you can't hassle him in the same way you'd hassle someone like LaSalle because he wasn't out here trying to like. Maybe he was trying to be someone like that, but it's like I don't know. I, you just want to pinch him on the cheeks, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was I was about to try and um, offer a distinction where like he's an activist rather than an intellectual, yeah. but then I suppose Lasalle is like chief <laughs> activist, isn't he? So yeah, um, yeah. Well, maybe everybody's an activist and an intellectual. Yeah, just don't sure. be a pure, don't be purely an intellectual. <laughs> exactly. William Morris, in my notes, I just says king. So, I think that's where you can leave William Morris. Um, I, um, I, in correlation with that, I'm not going to pretend I actually wrote it, but I very nearly just wrote Proudhon bad. Yeah, I know. Dan, can you please explain to us why, out of all of the people Al Draper hates, why he hates Proudhon possibly the most, and why he just... I said to you before this, it was character assassination more than anything, because the first... He starts off ostensibly talking about him by being like, anarchism bad, why? Let me explain to you why bad. And then he just goes into being like, this guy hated Jews. He hated everybody that wasn't like him. He was an idiot. He was ugly. He was fat. It's just like, whoa, okay, jeez, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the, the form of his character assassination, as you describe it, um, it sort of, it's, sort of t- it, it's presented in such a way where it's like, there's a paragraph of all these terrible things that you thought, <laughs> as you say, like horribly anti-Semitic, uh, like horribly racist in general, mm. um, incredibly low regard for women, incredibly mm. sexist. Obese. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, probably not. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, it all, I, and then I, as I recall, the next paragraph is like, all those things aside, here's why it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then he goes on. But I mean, the, 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 legit, the excuse for that is like, he's saying all the things why he just holds all these reprehensible, reprehensible views. But aside from all the reprehensible views that he has, <laughs> the way that he fits into the narrative of this essay, he's, he is also somebody who has absolutely no regard for um the masses no regard for democracy um is incredibly in fact like so many it's mad so many of these people who in the night in the 19th century described themselves as socialists all wanted to make an appeal to some kind of like king or dictator or 20th century too Mussolini people it's like what were you thinking i mean there's some crossover like some of these left like i mean like if there's somebody who deserves more scorn in this essay than like, like Proudhon's <laughs> like a footnote in the in relation to like the Fabians. Oh my god! Yeah, true. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah. For for people who deserve <laughs> real scorn from this or gain real scorn from this essay and really deserve it, are the Fabians. This is in relation to Jack just saying that people who likes like Mussolini, like. <laughs> The, the the way he describes the journey of the Fabians is like the mainstream of the Fabians kind of just melted into the Labour Party and sort of like mm. contributed to the Labour Party's general reformist attitude, except for like the founders of the the, the Fabians, <laughs> the Webs, who were like 
super into like hardcore Stalinism. And, like never faded from that opinion all the way through their lives. They were just like, but all the way through the purges, all the way through everything was just like, yeah. no, like Stalinism is the way. Except for those times when some of the Fabians were willing to be like, yeah, maybe this like Hitler guy, maybe Mussolini. I don't know. <laughs> because, yeah, other than because, that, other than when they found those guys. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. Because what they represent in the narrative of this essay is people who want to find some kind of like ruler some kind of leader of the state mm. who wants to benevolently gift mm. socialism to the people yeah um rather than uh having it i mean to quote like the famous line for marx like yeah. it being the what's the actual the work of the work the work class. is the work of class class something like that yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Yeah, but I mean, I, I wrote down in my notes that the Fabians are the ultra-socialism from above. Because, like, he goes through and talks about all these people. We'll go back to anarchism maybe in a bit, but, like, even even the anarchists are, like, very much advocating people like Proudhon for a uh, socialism from above. And definitely the utopians, like Isaac Robert Owen, were just, like, asking rich people to give us socialism, which I think rocked. Um, but the Fabians, they were just, like, I, you know, I thought it was really interesting where he said that the Fabians started out trying to have their political allegiances with the Liberal Party, and then when nobody cared about the, the Liberal Tories. Party at all. Yeah, exactly. And then when they were like, okay, well, this isn't going to work at all, they had to go with Labour. So, like, they wanted to be with Labour in the first place. This was definitely an answer to our question a couple episodes ago when we were like, what's going on with the Fabians? What's the deal with them? Not great. <laughs> it's never been good. <laughs> never been good. So yeah, his whole, his whole point is that they just are like this brain trust and always have been of people who are like, oh, uh, yes, let's, let's give the people uh, uh, what we think is best for them. And it's never socialism. You know what I mean? Never capitalized socialism. Yeah, there's a, um, there. I mean, there's a there's a phrase in the history of Marxism which doesn't necessarily have much understanding now, but for Draper probably meant quite a lot, which is the idea of bureaucratic uh, centralism. Is that the phrase that they use? Yeah. To basically collectivism, bureaucratic collectivism to describe mm -hmm. the economic model of the Soviet Union, and it emerges in this that one of the first uses of that phrase was somebody describing the kind of system that the Fabians were attempting to propagate kind of yeah. thing yeah. um so yeah if, if you ever hear that phrase used to describe the soviet union that's not where it first originated first originated describing these people who would go on to lord the economic model of the soviet union so i yeah. mean i suppose it was a justified use of the phrase yeah there's a there's a movie old movie called um the ruling class it's with i think peter o'toole and the very end, he's the whole the idea behind this movie is that he's this like aristocrat in the sixties, I think, or seventies, and he's like the son of an aristocrat, so he's like about to inherit everything, right? And he's just insane. Like he is just absolutely crazy. And the very end of the movie is like he finally gets inducted into the House of Lords because he gives this speech about like we need to bring back the death penalty and corporate corporal punishment. We need to like beat poor people, blah blah. And they're <laughs> all like corporate punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how about that, folks? Um, and everybody like in the House of Lords is applauding him. And as the speech gets crazier and crazier and as he just starts being more detached from reality, the people in the House of Lords uh, like morph into skeletons and it's all these skeletons with like cobwebs on them <laughs> clapping. That's always what I imagine the House of Lords and every Tory meeting ever to be. That, that's kind of what I imagine the Fabians to be yeah. at this point too. <laughs> maybe with slightly more colorful shirts, yeah. like slightly more fashionable maybe. Mm. Yeah, the... Um... Yeah, but the 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 Fabian, as you, like the Fabians' um, interest in, as you say, being a brain trust and presenting good ideas to who, well, what, what they seem to be, what they think of as being good and true ideas, and they desire to present them to whomever, basically whomever has power. It's exactly the same as you were saying about mm. um, 
Robert Owen wanted to find this sort of like benevolent sort of rich capitalist who would just institute the whatever or it's like LaSalle appealing to Bismarck or mm. it's like um I don't know who said someone like appealing to um Napoleon Bonaparte or something <laughs> yeah. like what seems to repulse the pe- most people who Hal Draper would sort of like identify with the idea of being someone who wants to institute socialism from above is this total disdain for class politics entirely. Exactly. Like yeah. they've got this real, like it really puts a poor taste in every, their mouths. Especially like, revolution. Yeah, 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 yeah. In any way to draw a dividing line, it's all about like um, how can we convince the decision makers who are clearly like rational actors <laughs> they don't have any class interest yeah. they they clearly just need to be made to see the light kind of thing and i mean that's something that we've definitely not gotten rid of like you oh, come absolutely. across that idea all the time even more so in the present day than any other i think i mean this is why i say everyone's a liberal yeah because <laughs> <laughs> everybody is a liberal it's this idea yeah it's we go back to the Miliband. it's the idea of Marxist conflict versus liberal conflict. It's the idea that everybody's coming to the table. They all want what's best for everybody and they have no other interests. Nobody else is at any, you know, different uh, different class. That doesn't matter for anything. Um, Dan, should we use that as a transition to talk about uh, Karl Marx? <laughs> How Karl Marx came up in this. That guy. That guy yeah. comes across pretty well yeah. in this. <laughs> what's the section called? What Marx did? <laughs> yeah, what Marx did. <laughs> so Draper says in this that Marx... Uh, I mean, okay, so for a lot of these people, the LaSalle fellas, maybe you kind of could see where they're coming from, where they're like, wow, look at this, you guys. We've created a society of of uh, so much excess. Why can't we just all agree that we can put this, you know, our class divisions, whatever. Why can't we just put all of that aside and just make things better for everybody? Well, uh, Marx, I suppose, comes along and says that you can't trust these people to just do that right? Because of this thing called class. But he also says you have to basically, the only people who will bring about socialism, capitalist socialism, not just like, you know, higher minimum wage or whatever, are going to be the working class because they're the only people. And this is, you know, I keep almost saying uh, Matic for some reason. Uh, Hal Draper says is Marx's big uh, gift to, to the world, I guess, is his idea that it has to be the working class because they're the only people with the uh, interest to make this change. No one else has this class interest to make the change because why would they? So it has to be the working class. And he's, yeah, I guess uh, Draper says that he's the one that kind of uh, helps to merge these ideas. Although certainly not the first person, but um, someone who merged these ideas of like socialism with popular movements. Um, and for that, he comes across very well in this essay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hal Draper makes this distinction in the history of like socialist movements, basically going all the way back to Rome, but like yeah. in particularly in the in the history of the nineteenth century, of there being movements for socialism and movements for radical democracy, and very seldom do these uh, movements ever intersect. Yeah, they intersect very brief- briefly with. Rackers for both and the conspiracy of equals, but mm. um, as that name name implies, like that movement slipped into what was the traditional mode of operation for uh, radicals at that time, which was conspiracy. They thought that they would institute a democracy and then make a system worthy of 
and I suppose make citizens worthy of said system, but a system that was worthy of representing the, the sort of receiving the mm. democratic input of the masses kind of thing. Socialism from above. Socialism from above, indeed. <laughs> um, what I thought quite interesting, what I found quite interesting about this description of Marx's trajectory into it was um, what uh, what Draper says is unique about Marx is he, he transitions to socialism through being an advocate for liberal democracy. Mm. Like he was already committed, he comes from a position of being committed to liberal reform of Germany, being one of these people, well, be in a position of wanting to appeal to like the Kaiser or whomever mm. it is that's going to actually institute these liberal demands. Um, he comes from a political background of being a liberal reformer in the sort of run up to, well, not in the, not in the immediate years preceding the uh, 1848 revolutions, but like a decade mm. or so before kind of thing. But by virtue of the fact that he came to socialism through a demand for democracy, he sort of held on to this commitment to uh, sort of universal democracy and um, sort of combined like revolutionary democracy with uh, revolutionary socialism mm. in a way that had never been done before. And then, as you say, yeah, built his political strategy all around... Um, enabling the working class to be the force which institutes socialism in the world. Mm. Um, and the way you, the way it comes across in this essay, it's like, um, and that sort of radical idea introduced by Marx was basically had people attempting to undermine it almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. Weird. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's like, I don't know. It, it, the question that I had uh, last week about like trying to reconcile left commie ideas and this idea of like it is only the working class that can deal with this stuff. So you just got to agitate and uh, propagandize, et cetera, et cetera, with like the possibility of a class war or something like that, or even like the possibility of a workers' party. It's interesting when you extrapolate from that, Marx is like, at least in this perceived view of um, uh, don't even try to like push the working class from above because it has to be them. Otherwise you're not going to get socialism. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I feel like anybody could interpret that any way that they want, because like you could even use that as a justification for like, I don't know, any kind of like authoritarian somehow, I'm sure you could twist it. Any kind of like authoritarian workers party to just like a workers party that's organized actually by and for workers. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's funny because like anybody can quote, Marx specifically to kind of like get whatever kind of socialism communism they want you can just like get any kind of passage um from Marx to prove your point but more I read this Marx fella um more it seems obvious that yes it is expected to be the working class that uh bottom up creates socialism but it's interesting where it's like well how you know like how do you where do you draw that line it's like would you be too scared, like, as, all, like, the council communists are, like, are you still going to be allergic to, like, a workers' party? Um, I don't think that's a wise idea, but it is interesting because it's like, yeah, I agree with this with this idea that, um, I keep almost calling it Maddox, Draper says um, about bottom-up versus top-down. I really like that distinction, but it's also, like, I don't know, is that is that, like, a little, a little, a little broad? You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm interested mm. to actually hear what mm. you think about that, especially about, like, um, getting more into like the uh, as it relates to kind of like what you've been listening to with the Lenin rediscovered and about like uh, workers parties and stuff like that because you can easily read this as just 
allergic to anything like that. But yeah, come on, you know what I mean. I mean, there there is a there is another big question that we've been asking ourselves through the podcast, and it was sort of insti- instigated in our brains again by some of the stuff in the Middleman book, mm-hmm. which is the distinction between which is what you're sort of hinting at as well is the distinction between the relationship between the class and the party mm. and how is the party to relate to the class if not as it can potentially be seen to be doing as falling into this role of a force which gifts socialism to the workers kind of thing yeah um so there it was not it's only hinted at a few times in this essay and not very fully um quite how we should conceptualize the um the role of the party or the the role of advocates for socialism mm. in relation to the the work the sort of the working class movement i suppose um and i think it's uh, there, there's maybe one reference to the idea of like vanguardism although i can't mm. really quite recall where it is at some point uh-huh. I thought there was a favorable. I thought, that, as I recall, there's a favorable reference to vanguardism and the role of the vanguard party. Mm-hmm. He makes a. Dist- I think he's making a distinction between like, um, uh, yeah, I suppose maybe a putschist party as opposed to a, sure. a sort of vanguardist party. Yeah. Um, there is some quotes for Marx, which I was thinking of trying to get into a little bit, which might try and satisfy some of that some of those queries, I suppose, if I can make it work for myself. Ooh. Anyway, there's a quote from Marx. Whereas, as we say to the workers, and there's a hypothetical sort of quotes, you will have to go through 15 or 20 or 50 years of civil war and international wars, not only in order to change extant conditions, but also in order to change yourselves and to render yourselves fit for political domination. So it's like there's a lot of work going to have to go into making the working class ready to be mm. the class ready to like institute its own like as we call it a, a proletarian dictatorship. I suppose I think that's what he means by political domination. And then sort of there's a there's a uh, something added by Hal Draper. He quotes Marx again: "In order to change yourselves and to render yourselves fit for political domination." There's his quote. This is Marx's program for the working class movement as against both those who say the working class can take power any Sunday and those who say never. So uh, the reason why I try and quote, I sort of quote this and I think the, what um, Hal Draper is trying to imply here is there is a line to be drawn, I think, between saying that the working class is totally incapable of doing what Marx is presenting them as doing, which is uh, ushering in socialism, I suppose. Mm. And also by saying that and maybe what maybe it would be mis, a mixed characterization, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> it, he's also kind of opposing, perhaps the kind of like council communists, like the workers know best, mm. or even even you sometimes encounter it in, in sort of like um, kind of like either right wing labour circles in the UK, or basically in the minds of certain people, where it's like you have to pander to every thought that the working class has you have to always see them as having the right ideas kind of thing um i think marx is also opposed to the idea that the working class de, de facto knows best you know yeah. um they're not they, they they are endowed with the ability to make certain revolutionary social change but just because they have that capacity doesn't mean that they've learn how to exercise it they have this power but they have not learned to use it i suppose 
Um, and so there is a role for a political project, a project of political education, which is uh, to aid and to help build up that uh, revolutionary force and that revolutionary mass, not so that you can sort of wield it, but so that you can sort of set it free or allow it to fulfill its role, I kind of think. Yeah, think. absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a real, yeah, there's one more sentence where he says the heart of this theory is the proposition that there is a social majority which has the interest and motivation to change the system and that, that the aim of socialism can be the education and mobilization of this mass majority. Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know, take that and make it whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still a very sort of like... <laughs> still, still, still a very loose use of language. Yeah, the, I mean, but this isn't this isn't this isn't a. Um, I guess to be fair to Hal Draper, this isn't an essay about the sure. sort of tactics of uh, a vanguardist socialist party. Mm. I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the big question that hangs over it. It hangs over us still, kind of thing. And, yeah. Uh, we continue to be uh, trying to work on and wrestle with. Yeah, and I think that's the reason that maybe I like really like the distinction of uh, top-down socialism versus bottom-up. But it's also like you could easily be like any kind of mobilization of the working class is top-down. And I don't think he would, but it would be very easy to make that argument if you were like ultra-left council communist king. Um, very easy to, you know, as you've said before, be allergic to anything like that. Um so I don't know. I don't think that's what he's trying to say at all, but it's like condensing the idea of all socialism historically as he's trying to do as either top down or bottom up runs victim of being too broad, mm. even though it's a great framing yeah, device. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with a lot of what he says. Um, I don't agree with the bit where he relegates the diggers to just like, let's not even talk about that. <laughs> I was a little offended by that. He's talking about Krakus Babuff and he was like the first person to ever merge socialism with popular movements. And then he has a little footnote. He's like, other than the diggers, but they accomplish nothing. <laughs> it's like, well, what did Krakus Babuff accomplish, dude? Like, Jesus. Um, but yeah. Okay, yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, I think perhaps I misunderstood um, the distinction you were trying to make or what you were trying to say in terms of it being too broad a distinction maybe we shouldn't lump everybody into one camp or other. Is that what you're implying? Kind of yeah, thing? but I mean, on the other hand, I'm like, why not? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. It, it, I, I mean, don't I suppose, know. yeah, like, in, ter in terms of, like, um, the way he treats the anarchists, say, <laughs> or some other thinkers in this, or the way, like, Kalkowski's only represented very loosely and secondhand through some, something yeah. that he says kind of thing, very briefly. Um yeah, maybe you're right. There is a certain, or maybe it would be right to say there's a certain amount of people being forced into one comp camp or other to sort of like satisfy the the narrative of the essay. Mm. That said, like, I mean, it, it's clearly a sort of like an effort at a history, but also it's an effort at giving us a a theoretical framework with which to judge ideas i suppose yeah and as a sort of theoretical framework or as a as a as two pieces of terminology from which to judge uh the ideas that might be presented presented as by any given socialist mm. it's probably quite a good place to start like uh, which of these two camps does this person said socialist best fall into yeah um, yeah yeah I like at the start when he's kind of saying that um, he 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 presents two very contradictory ideas. Like <laughs> to some extent, um, 
socialism from below has always like made itself preeminent mm. in the history yeah. of the socialist movement. And at the same time, he says, but there's real great danger of falling back into the other one. It should always, we should always be making the efforts to overcome it. And yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, if it's so, if it's so powerful and so prevalent, like <laughs> it does seem like it's the dominant strain, the, 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 the degree to which socialist movements tend to slip back into the, the socialism from above category, I suppose. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to touch a little bit more, unless there's anything else you want to say on that, I'd like to touch a little bit more on the anarchists, because I think a sure. great, um, as I hope we're building towards, possibly not, a discussion of what socialism actually is, <laughs> we can talk about... In for, this episode or... <laughs> in uh, episode 62. Um, <laughs> A, uh, it's worth uh, discussing a little bit more about anarchism um, yeah. because it would be very easy to kind of be exposed to these uh, communist socialist ideas about class and about everything like that and just have this anarchist attitude of like, just, just get rid of the authority, dude. But uh, yeah, it's when we're talking about what is socialism and what's not, it's important to kind of be wary of the pitfalls of something like anarchism, which... Um, you could say goes a little bit too far to the left, but he makes a point where it's like, no, it goes too far to the... It's like a, almost a right-wing thing, especially when he's talking about Proudhon and he calls him Hitler. It's like... <laughs> but I just just to read a little bit real quick, he says, anarchism is not concerned with the creation of democratic control from below, but only with the destruction of authority over the individual, including the authority of the most extremely democratic regulation of society that is possible to imagine. Anarchists do not advocate political freedom. What they advocate is freedom from politics. Um, there he's quoting George Woodcock, who is an anarchist, which is, I think is kind of funny. Um, anarchism is on the principle fiercely anti-democratic, since an ideally democratic authority is still authority. Um, and so, yeah, you know, at a certain point, you kind of have to, when you're imagining a new world, as he says, it's really important because you can't just imagine socialism as a negative, right? It has to be something new. You have to be creating something. You can't just be getting rid of capitalism. You have to have this view, this other view in mind. Um you kind of have to put on your big boy pants for a moment and you kind of have to be like, how's this going to be organized? There's going to be some kind of authority because we need to like organize things. And obviously we want it to be as democratic as possible, but like a free association of free and equal producers, that's still a kind of authority. So you can't just be like, have this attitude of get rid of all of the bad dude anarchism, bro. Like that doesn't really work. And I, yeah. And I think it's certainly worth, uh, Stopping yourself for a moment when you're coming to these ideas about, uh, uh, you know, class politics and everything. When we're trying to figure out what socialism is, it's not that. <laughs> Just as it isn't liberalism. For kind of a lot of the same reasons, which is interesting. Dan, you've called anarchist liberals before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you, you uh, read that quote because I don't think I fully understood it until um, you read it there. It's fair to say, I suppose, that he is dealing with um, a sort of partial reading of the history of anarchism. Like he just talks about Hitler. Uh, <laughs> he talks about uh, French Hitler, and he talks about um, uh, Russian. No, he talks about uh, Mikhail Bakunin um, as being two figures who, in various degrees, like support. Um, well, they seem to fall into the category of people who advocate for. Uh, uh, some kind of like conspiracy, conspiratorial mm. political effort rather than one which is a political strategy which is um, out of the open and um, 
open to mass. Absolutely. Mass. Uh, it, it, it tends to appeal to the masses, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so so just to just to be kind to people who um, might identify with some other brand of anarchism, say sure. say like um, Kropotkinian, yeah. like uh, anarcho-communism, or uh, people who enjoy a bit of Murray Bookchin and sort of like <laughs> who would identify themselves in some way as class struggle anarchists. Like hmm. there might be other rooms for different branches of anarchism and how that those branches of anarchism might overlap with yeah. um, socialism. That said, like it's a really fascinating and interesting point, the one that you just brought up, the idea that... And it sort of inches us toward a first category of like what is socialism as opposed mm. to what is what are socialist or what are Marxist socialist politics as opposed to what are anarchist politics. Whereas, it, yeah, in this instance, like the anarchists are for total liberty and will accept no authority over them under any circumstances which is more feels more like it's your kind of like um sort of like stand your ground american gun not libertarians <laughs> and it is like anything that we might want to like uh. associate associate ourselves with politically mm. um a socialist politics would allow for um creating a political this is the distinction between freedom political freedom and freedom from politics yeah like socialists are for political freedoms they're for the right for free speech and for free debate and for open discussion of ideas um therefore the best the most democratic way of deciding which ideas your polity is going to follow um but it, they are for majoritarian politics. They're off we, I suppose, mm. if we want to associate with this. Yeah, go for it. Socialists <laughs> are for the, major, the the decisions of the majority um, being at least acceptable, being acceptable that in some bounds for the decisions of the majority to curtail mm. the libertarian desires of the individual. Mm. Whereas in this, he's sort of describing. Uh, Proudhon's anarchism of just being like a politics of do whatever the hell you want. Hell yeah. Um, Which is something that I think we can all agree sounds cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So, you know, not blaming anybody. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just a little juvenile. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, again, not to be like... I mean, like, this is weird, right? Because, like, there was a few weeks ago, Jack and I were talking off mic, and I was saying that I'd realized that actually I was probably a lot more anti-authoritarian than I'd ever realized that I was. Sure. So I probably shouldn't get too giddy about the idea of um, sort of majorities, like, ruthlessly enforcing their decisions upon minorities. Um, But I think a Marxist politics would seek to develop a... uh, a, 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 a kind of polity which functioned in a way which allowed for that to happen with the least social discord mm. sort of like erupting in the form of like violent rebellion or whatever <laughs> like within the bounds of maintaining sort of like social harmony you have to be able to set up a political system whereby um, I don't know majorities can take decisions that mm. curtail minorities mm. I like to think um, that if we all sat down and talked about it, we came to very <laughs> similar conclusions. Maybe that's the liberal in me, but I think that, like, if you were to meet French Hitler, maybe not French Hitler, someone who has read French Hitler and is like, 
I like this. I like anti-authoritarianism, as we all do. You could maybe be like, okay, well, what comes next after the revolution? Because it, you know, you can't have nothing. Like, you have to have some kind of organization. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's another quote here, which I'm going to read. Um, I don't think it's from Marx. I think it's from the Communist League. Ooh. This is on page 10. From mm. the Communist League, but... Um, either written by Marx and Engels or in, in Marxist writing or whatever. Um, and it sort of contains several elements, some of which we can talk about in more detail and some of which just go to illustrate what we've been talking about so far. Um, he starts, but we have no desire to exchange freedom for equality. Um, and then there's this, a sentence which we can come back to, I think, because it would be quite useful for our discussion of what is socialism. Um, we are convinced that in no social order will personal freedom be so assured than in, the, than in a society based upon common ownership. Let us put our hands together, no, let us put our hands to work in order to establish a democratic state wherein each party would be able, by word or in writing, to win a majority over to its ideas. So there we have, there we have it, like, Let's put together a political system whereby people are politically free to campaign for the ideas that they think should be um, the ones which guide society. And if you can win a majority to those ideas, those ideas should be implemented. This is kind of just basic, like almost like liberal <laughs> politics. Yeah, <isn't> it? <laughs> you could, you could, you could. This is in like 1947 or whatever, or 1940 in the in 19 in the 1840s. So you can you can see Marx here influenced by his kind of like. <laughs> by his uh, his um, his liberal background, I suppose, mm. and then also you have this distinction between like freedom and equality, which is coming back to what we were talking about anarchism, right? Like, yeah. if equality is like, well, actually, I think in this instance he's talking about people who who are on the socialism from up in fall into the socialism from above category, who might be seen to be wanting to install some kind of like barracks socialism or barracks communism, where everybody is like plugged into a harmonious social unit like mm. we're almost dissolving the individual into um a sort of smooth running uh social organism to some extent mm. like that also in this instance is not marxist socialism yeah it's, it, even if that what i've just described seems to chime with certain things that one might have seen under certain phases of the sort of like Soviet Union in its Stalinoid period. <laughs> um, no, Marxist socialism is for the utmost human freedom. Mm. Mm. And also that freedom is represented by the political freedoms that we've just been talking about. Yeah. Um, I don't know what we have to say about socialism as a system of common ownership. Mm. I suppose... We might come onto it in future mm. future weeks. Future weeks, but it's something to plug onto that list of like. I mean, obviously, we know that socialism is opposed to private ownership in the form of sure ownership of the means of production by the bourgeoisie kind of thing. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, might, yeah, might have to be. I think part of a perhaps bigger discussion, an ongoing. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, it's it's it, that all I think speaks to Draper's main point in this essay which as far as he's making one other than like historical analysis seems to be that like i think he calls it at the beginning like the history of socialism is the history of socialism trying to free itself from these top-down ideas right yeah. and so like 
Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because, like, in the discussion of anarchism, I feel like that's exactly what they would say. Like, their beliefs are, you know what I mean? Like, we're trying to get rid of all of these top-down ideas, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have too much else to say kind of like on Marx there. Because no, no. I think it is I think it is like a much, uh, perhaps a bigger discussion. And I think it also would probably get into a discussion of the like, what did Marx say in his early years versus what did Marx say later, perhaps. Which yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they might be out of the bounds of this uh, episode today. Um, yeah. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to say on that, on the on Marx? I think, I think we've covered the Marx mm. quite well. <laughs> <laughs> well, comprehensively, we've I covered guess. it. Let's, let's not say <laughs> no well, adjectives, <laughs> no <laughs> adverbs. We've covered it. <laughs> we've done. We've done. We're done. Um, I'd like to make a distinction real quick, if I may. Yeah. And I think this was an important one that he made about utopianism. Um, because he makes the distinction when he talks about just the utopians, he's talking about the Robert Owen types who were like, why can't we just appeal to this sense of, uh, you know, we all love society and uh, all of the rich people, why can't they just give us socialism versus someone like William Morris? And I was trying to figure out why he like loved William Morris so much. And I think it's because of this, of a definition maybe that he's trying to create of utopianism, of u utopia, which is like one, I don't know, it's, it's, you hear a lot of socialists use the word utopian in a derogatory, a derogatory, derogatory <laughs> way. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to see what he's doing when he compares someone like Robert Owen to Morris, because obviously you can say that like, you know, everyone you disagree with, liberal, anarchist, whatever is like, they're utopian. This will never work. Only what I believe will work. But it is really important, I think, to have a view of what is possible. And I think that that's like something that maybe like the council communists latch on to like a lot. And it's just like if you just tell people what's possible, they'll all figure it out. It'll all be okay. But like I think the main reason that he really likes Morris, and I could be wrong about this, but it is because for all of his faults in not really having like worked out theories of much other than maybe art, which is cool, um, He's someone who is able to kind of like cut through the chaff of liberal politics and even like, you know, Fabian kind of uh, shenanigans to put forward an empowering message. And I think that that's important because it's like when you use the word utopian uh, to be derogatory, it loses sight of the importance of some kind of utopian vision. Mm. Because like a utopian vision can be as simple as just like reading what Marx said and like looking forward to a better future where humanity is able to actually fulfill uh, what it's able to fulfill. Um, so I think, I don't know if I am really making a point other than it is important to have some kind of utopian thinking, but you can't let that get in the way, I suppose, of reality. Yeah. Which I say that William Morris probably did, mm -hmm. but what are you going to do? I don't know. Yeah, two things spring to mind from what you were just saying. One, I'm, I feel a bit sure about, and one I'm not so sure about. <laughs> um, the one would be to say that utopian in this context seems to imply like you have an unreasonable or t basically idiotic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're, 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 you're advocating an unreasonable strategy for achieving your aims mm. like it's just totally unreasonable to think that you can appeal to a greater power to institute the ideal society in your midst kind of thing i suppose i don't know what i'm saying there <laughs> that was a stupid sentence <laughs> i just stopped i basically just stopped Join thinking about what i was saying and words <laughs> carrying on coming out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs>
So yeah, the, <laughs> so there's the 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 so the the un, unreasonableness of the tactic. Um, and then also the other thing that springs to mind in talking about Morris is thinking about Morris. Perhaps is like the idea of a utopia in which sort of social discord is entirely overcome. Mm. Like that would be another utopian outlook. Would be to say that we know the system in which like all problems of society will be solved we would find the we would find the um we would achieve social harmony i suppose would probably be another sort of like yeah utopian approach um one which i think is 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 um inoculated against in marxism based upon the quotes that we were reading before about you're still going to have a political system and you're still going to have to have people advocating for certain opinions and there are going to be minorities and there are going to be majorities sure. and people are going to be disappointed. There's still going to be politics kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I don't know. They're my thoughts on utopia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although it's, it, yeah, I think the but, only but reason... The, yeah, but the idea of like having a, having a vision mm. is certainly important. Like we can't, sure. we can't go around not telling people what we want, what yeah, we're exactly. for. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the only reason that it's like an interesting point when he brings up Morris is because it's like, I always thought of him as someone who was too utopian, as much as I loved it. I think it's maybe just the, <laughs> maybe it's just that Draper agrees with his utopia, so mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you only have Well, I mean, yeah, he's uti- yeah, he's utopian in the sense that like, he has uh, changes that he wants to make to society. He thinks that he has mm. a, a blueprint for what a better way of arranging certain things in society are. Sure. Um, but he's perhaps, he, he's just not utopian, he's not utopian in, in uh, Hal Draper's distinction because he is somebody who is willing to appeal to the masses yeah. and wants to bring the masses along with them and wants to enable the masses to be part of creating the new world rather than have the world be forced upon the masses whether they want it or not by... Um, <laughs> By a uh, by, Jeff so, Bezos. by some others, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That, that, that's who we've got today, isn't it? Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. That was another thing too. When he was talking about Robert Owen, it's like, wow, I see this person every day on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> this is every liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, the Elon Musk stands. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, only other person, or only other maybe thing that I'd like to bring up. He doesn't bring him up in depth a lot, but he talks about FDR a bit. And I really liked the phrase that he used to describe FDR, which was the people's monarch. I thought that was great. Because he was basically mm-hmm. saying, this is, I think, after the Fabians discussion, discussion where he's saying, like, ultra socialism from above. He's like, you know, same thing with FDR. It's like FDR was someone who was bestowing these reforms upon people. Um, and uh, basically just comes out as basically being like, be wary of that. Because that's not only not socialism, but it's also like, you can't trust anything that's like a educational dictatorship or whatever yeah, i don't yeah, think yeah. he's that necessarily to, to talk about fdr but um yeah i love that people's monarch it's like mm-hmm. a oof, brutal yeah yeah yeah. um yeah do you mind if i cover a little bit of the narrative of the just to get us to that point kind of thing because i mm. think it's quite important like um we get to that point by him going through this whole fifth st- various stages of developments in various countries in western europe and america basically saying that there was a Almost from the offing, for the most part, there were people who were making the parallel between socialism is just state control. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whether it's like the Fabians, whether it's um, 
Bernstein's revisionism in terms of the Fabians, whether even within the context of the Social Democrats, whether it goes all the way back to Ferdinand Lasalle, mm. like, um, and and you can see it in that sort of turn of the century narrative whereby almost like capitalism is developing to the point where like capitalism is collectivizing things capitalism is creating bigger and bigger firms that can all be collectivized together at a certain point the state just becomes Mm. the firm and by the time that the state it, it becomes the singular capitalist firm then you basically have overcome uh but overcome capitalism capitalism doesn't exist and function anymore and you have socialism by de facto that the that socialism is just state control yeah um and that's what you get to in america at that point in history where all so many socialists sort of dissolve themselves into the new deal project um they put all their faith in how did you describe fdr the people's monarch. Uh, the people's monarch, yeah. <laughs> the, the benevolent dictator. Mm. Because um, the benevolent dictator definitely doesn't ever go away. And even if they do good, good things, those things can't possibly be undone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes, the last yeah, 20 yeah, episodes yeah, 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 have yeah. shown. And yeah, if we're going through the list of names that, of people who come off well in this, like uh, in the American context, Eugene V. Debs. Mm. Um, yeah. Eventually. Yeah, the people's king. The people's king. <laughs> exactly. Unironically. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. At first, he's he likes to Draper distances himself from Debs a bit by being like, at first, he kind of didn't really get it. He kind of liked to defer uh, bringing about socialism to kind of like a higher apparatus from above. But then he eventually got it, you know, kind of whatever that means. And he quotes a couple paragraphs from him where he basically just says... Um, I've come to realize that it's the people who must do the thing. Mm. And it's like, oh, okay, socialism <laughs> from below, I guess. <laughs> and he makes the point that it's like, that was so dangerous, he got thrown in prison, I think, or something mm. like that. Well, uh, it's probably the opposition to the war that was also problematic. There's also that. <laughs> One, you know? Yeah. I said this to you right before we started recording, but I had no idea who so many of those American socialists were. Yeah. And at one point he brings up somebody and he's like, this guy was so popular in his day, he sold 100,000 copies of his book. And I was just like, who is he talking about? <laughs> it, was, it was very odd. I was like, God, I know nothing yeah. about socialism in the United States. I don't think these guys were worth knowing. <laughs> I don't think they existed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're all made up. They're all made up. Well, they're definitely all socialism from above guys. So. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So dust your hands with them. Yeah, these, these, these were people who were writing books that were advocating political utopias in which some kind of despot comes along and uh, I don't know. Does the thing. Does the thing. <laughs> okay, let's just because um, I've had a, a, a lot of feedback before on doing the show that um, you and I are very quick to be like, that's clearly, obviously not socialism. When we talk about things in our current day, uh-huh. whether we talk about Bernie Sanders or God Queen uh, AOC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's just jump off of that point, which is, Socialism, folks, is not just when the government does things. (laughs) (laughs) Medicare for all is a reform that's very badly needed in the United States. and It would be immoral to suggest otherwise. But that isn't socialism. (laughs) That isn't common ownership. That isn't uh, 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 abolition of private property. Mm -hmm. That is a reform. Yeah. It might even be a very well-needed fix for an incredibly inefficient capitalist system. Like, oh, absolutely. America has one of the most inefficient medical healthcare systems in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you can you can imagine, and it does happen. You can imagine the biggest firms in America advocating for universal healthcare, so that they are relieved of the burden of having to pay for it. One, and they are also giving a much more healthy workforce <laughs> yeah. to exploit for exactly. longer periods, rather than people's lives ending in their fifties or sixties because they've had no medical healthcare and their bodies are broken. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, it, it like when we when we talk about socialism, I'm going to try and say as non-controversial things as we can here, but it is a it isn't a reform, mm -hmm. a simple reform. It isn't the government doing something to make mm -hmm. your lives better. It is a complete abolition of the way things are currently done. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a distinction that we've we sort of drew earlier a little bit between socialism as a political system and what it is to be a socialist. Mm. Socialists should advocate for universal healthcare in America. Sure. Like, unobjectionably, a better circumstance <laughs> for the well-being of the working class of America would be everybody to have the best and most comprehensive mm -hmm. healthcare. Same with like a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. People should yeah, be yeah, paid yeah. that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anything that alleviates the sort of like the suffering of the working classes in some small way should be advocated for. Now, I think, I mean, if we, if we were talking in real sort of like strategic tactical terms, like. The intra the the from the standpoint of people advocating for a transition to socialism from capitalism, with the bulk of that work being done by a uh, well-educated and empowered working class, like campaigning for these things which would make the lives of the working class better, is also the political education that would allow sure. the working class to then go on and take that trans transformation make take that transformation further if that makes sense mm. um so in that these things are good that they are an, an undeniably goods for people's well-being um but far better that they be fought for and won than be gifted from a point of from a position of power to a position of total despair, i.e. Sure. the capitalists and the political class are in the position of power and the working class are in a position of being trodden down and in total despair and they're going to sort of take whatever breadcrumbs they can get. Um, mm. We're looking to build a movement which is capable of uh, campaigning for and winning things which the ruling class does not want to give, I suppose. Mm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Does that advance our discussion a little bit? <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, and it's, I think one thing that's also really important to note, but is like, you, you cannot simply stop there as a socialist. Yeah. You, you can't just be like, government, do more things. Come on, make our lives better. You like, this is kind of, this is funny because this is the thing that pisses me off about the council communists. And this is the thing that I really like is almost this like, it would be unfair to say an abandonment of strategy and just ignoring it. But this idea of like, you need to unapologetically and like loud and clear state, we need to abolish the wage system, we need to abolish private property, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it like, 
to be a socialist, you need to not only you you cannot simply stop at bettering the lives of the working class under capitalism. You need to make the point that these things will not permanently change until we get rid of private property, until we get rid of the wage system, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean it's 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 from capitalism. It's from the fundamental basis upon which our economic system, the fundamental tenets, the fundamental laws upon which our economic system is based, that all of the objectionable inequities of our society stem. Mm. I don't, do I stand by that? Stand other, by other than the <laughs> other than those ones that somehow like predate capitalism have just been morphed sure. into a new form, right? Yeah. Obviously, there are forms of oppression which predate capitalism. Obviously, they haven't been totally radically transformed to capitalism. Obviously, some of them still exist and haven't been overcome. I mean, I'm talking about like oppression on the grounds of race or sex. Mm-hmm. These these kinds of oppressions which have taken on a capitalist veneer, but obviously existed beforehand, right? Sure. So they don't all stem purely from the structure of capitalism but like in terms of uh economic uh inequity in terms of people being prevented from living their most fulfilled lives possible um it's from the um <laughs> i was just about to say that thing which we were once warned about, about saying about uh i was about to say it's from the unequal distribution <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. oh no um but also it's from the the um total lack of control that the majority of us have over the productive apparatus of society a total lack of um democratic will which guides what things are made to meet what ends mm that uh creates and propagates social ills absolutely yeah (laughs) sure um socialists advocate as the solution to the ills of capitalism collective and democratic control of the productive capacities and apparatuses of society as opposed to private control Mm. there we go yes (laughs) (laughs) we just solve what socialism is i will say also very important last thing i'll say on that is um very important as I think, Dan, what you're saying illustrates, um, it if socialism is, as Draper is saying, to tie back to the Draper, is something positive. It is adding something to the mix. It is not simply negative. It is not, you know, getting rid. It is not simply getting rid of the state. It is not simply getting rid of uh, capitalism. It is, one might say, a utopian view of the way things could be. It is creating something new. So to be a socialist and to simply say, you know. Get rid of this. This sucks. I, I hate being paid in wages. This sucks. Um, it is to come up with something else, and it is to have this better view of society, uh, which is one that is uh, free from uh, the value form and free from, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, it's also adding something new. It's also adding something new, um, which we'll get to uh, what that is eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if it is utopian to believe that it's possible for the working masses of society to collectively and democratically control and guide and plan all aspects of society, then socialism is utopian. Sure. And if those things are possible, Mm. then it's inherently practical. 
And given given that a transition from capitalism to some other mode of production is entirely necessary, <laughs> and <laughs> given that like that transition being to something that is more liberated and democratic is entirely desirable, then I think we have to hope that the possibility for a Marxist socialist transmission transition from capitalism to socialism is a desirable and not utopian outcome. Absolutely. If anybody followed that. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel as though I have not been very uh, lucid in my thoughts, but hopefully some people have followed what I've been trying to say. Socialism good. Socialism what I'm good. To say. Socialism good. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps even communism good. Yeah. Oh, we'll get onto the difference between those two. <laughs> oh, so, did we do that today? I can't um, I've, I've just, I've just we started telling people there is none. Move on. You're a communist. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um. Hal Draper, man, pretty good. Yeah, pretty, I was. Good. I'm just trying to remember. There's some stuff in the conclusion which I just wanted to try and come to. Um, not that uh, maybe we, maybe it's not necessarily relevant, mm. uh, but we'll see. Maybe it can all go. Like when he says socialism from above is old crap. <laughs> really? <laughs> I that was cool. I was like, all right, nice. I just like how he in the conclusion he basically begins laying into into intellectuals, right? Intellectual go for it, intellectuals are people in the position to choose socialism from above if they so choose flunkies they're in the position whereby a bureaucratic centralist system might appeal or whereby because of they've risen out of the working class and become sort of middle class functionaries they're quite happy to accept a system which is as as Draper, a system that Draper would describe as socialism from above they're quite happy in their um, lofty positions to mm. take upon the role of gifting socialism to the masses. The masses, on the other hand, have no other option. Yeah, but to believe in and, and attempt to propagate uh, the institution of socialism from below. Um, and he's also saying that, like, intellectuals and people who can choose perhaps to believe in the possibility of institutions of socialism from above mm. are always going to be pushed toward that position in those periods of history where a um, powerful and vocal um, and interventionalist, interventionist working class movement doesn't seem to be apparent. Mm. And uh, Draper makes the argument that History always, at some point, pushes a sort of radical democratic mass movement onto the scene. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it's not really covered in this, but I guess our question is, like, how do we work toward that moment? How do we uh, see what exists at the moment and how can we push it? How can we help to sort of move it in that direction kind of thing mm. what what do what can intellectuals do supposing that i suppose we're intellectuals i don't know what How can dare you? what can what can people who are in the position to choose that if socialism from above and socialism from above above below are both tactical positions if they're if they're both strategic questions what can people who are in the position of choosing which strategy to propagate if they were to choose socialism from below, what can they be doing in the downtime that's helping um, advance the political strategy of 
the institution of socialism from below, from the masses. Mm. Um, but I suppose that might be something to think about unless you have anything to Yeah, no, I think, I think the only thing I'll add, I'll add to that is I like, well, I'll just read it. He says, the fact is that the choice between socialism from above and socialism from below is, for the intellectual, basically a moral choice, whereas for the working masses who have no social alternative, it is a matter of necessity. So he's almost saying that, like, if you're considering socialism from above, that's a luxury. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, cool, okay. Um, yeah, I like that framing. If it's a bit overly simplistic, why not? Who cares? Go for it. Um, I would say, yeah, I would say maybe it's just like a framing thing for this whole piece. This would be something good for you to read, folks, um, period. But also, like, if you have some friends who are, like, new to socialism um, and are maybe scared of the word communist, uh, this would be a really good thing for them to read, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll reiterate what I said before. I think this is a really good narrative which escapes some of the pitfalls of other historical narratives mm-hmm. and uh, adds other... Um, uh, Describes historical developments with certain other focuses, I suppose. Sure. It puts other people in perspective. In posi- it, it brings people into perspective that's sometimes obscured, and it gives us a narrative which sort of runs the long durée of social, the history of socialism um, without fixating on certain sort of like pivotal points, which are pivotal, but like... Yeah. yeah. Over, over-emphasized and obsessed upon, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I dig it. I dig Me it. Me too. Let's put it in the canon. <laughs> Let's put it in. Never think about it again. Um, put it in the canon and shoot it at the bathroom. <laughs> I would like to see 10 rounds between this guy and Ralph Miliband. Tell you what. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty good. Um, yeah. Any, anything else you want to add to it? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. New I, Sons of Kemet? Yeah. I haven't listened to all of it yet, but pretty good. No, no, I've so Listen, just it. listen to the singles. Really, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dig it. Um, go listen to that. Go listen to that, folks. That's the official. <laughs> I was gonna say that's the official podcast recommendation from this week. We should probably say it's the Hell Draper. Yeah. <laughs> it's their official recommendation. <laughs> we, we've just spent whatever over an hour talking about Hell Draper, but really, what we want you to do <laughs> is pay no attention to this and actually go and listen to the new Sons of Camera album. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I suppose. Any other good music you've been listening to recently to leave the people with? Uh, um, oh, I wish I had a good recommendation to make. <laughs> what recommendations have we not made? Have we? We not talked about music in a long time. Yeah, we haven't. It's been it's been a, it's been a very long time. Um, I've listened to a lot of different stuff, very different stuff. I've been listening to a lot of Leon Russell recently. Some like early Leon Russell, just like full on. His like couple of his live albums, which rock. That guy's a king. I was I saw an interview with him today where he said something along the lines of like the interview was like, you never played with like you played with like everybody, but you never played with like a lot of the like blues greats. Like you know why you know, uh, and he's like yeah you know I, I basically you know I never did. I was just kind of like doing my own thing. And the interview was like well he wasn't blues, but you played a couple shows with um, uh, Frank Sinatra. And he was like, what happened with that? You started on the tour and then you dropped out. <laughs> and Leon Russell said something along the lines of, I started doing the tour with him, but I realized very quickly that there were too many cops that showed up to his show. So it freaked me <laughs> out and I quit, <laughs> which I was like, hell yeah. That's awesome. Got that priority straight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listen to him. Uh, rediscovered Wolf Brigade. They rock. Very different from Leon Russell, but yeah, Wolf Brigade, very cool. I don't know. King Gizzard as usual. Still rock. They announced a new album, which we should say. 
the uh, um, the folks who do the music for the show. <laughs> they, need, they need our promotion. They need our clearly. promotion, <laughs> clearly. But yeah, everyone get hyped. It's called Butterfly 3000, which will be cool. Nice. Is there a date? June 11th, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And they're not doing any singles, which I kind of dig. I think that's cool. So yeah. my recommendations for the week. An album that's not out yet. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Um, right. <laughs> it would seem we have reached the end. It seems we have run out of gas. Uh-huh. I always feel, I, whenever we, we've been doing this on a schedule recently where like it's before we start is too early to eat dinner. And then after we finish, it's way too late to have dinner. So by the time I get to this point, I'm like, so run out of gas. I'm like, socialism, it's what you want it to be. Maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's yeah. when the government does things. <laughs> socialism, it's a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a big Juicy burger. Just kidding. It's not a burger. That's disgusting. Closing thoughts, Dan. How do you feel about like ultra realistic fake meat? Um, why well, like three or four? Okay, <laughs> I was expecting <laughs> a number. <laughs> well, I was just trying to like. Yeah. I like. I like. I suppose I've been very opo- ultra realistic. Have I had anything that's ultra realistic? Like, like I, Beyond Burger I, which is the I've not had an Impossible Burger. I think mm. I've had a Beyond Burger and I quite enjoyed a Beyond, the Beyond Burger. Yeah. Yeah. It was all right. Yeah. I mean, I've eaten so like men, so few, so mm. many, so <laughs> few like meat parties in my life. Like yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, they're all ultra realistic in the sense <laughs> sure. that I don't really have very much to compare them to. Yeah, I've um, never had a real I don't meat think, one. I'm not sort of like, I'm not sort of like horrified by, I don't object to things attempting to imitate meat. Mm. I draw the line at the beet juice is blood. That's just like, come <laughs> on. That's like a thing you don't like about a real burger. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the impossible burger stick, isn't it? They've gone mm. to really long lengths to try and find a natural way of making <laughs> heme iron, which they can then put in the burger so that it actually cooks in some way. So that actually, yeah, I hate that. like cooking the meat burger is not just heating it up. I don't it's like actually that. changing its structure. I don't like that. It's adding an unnecessary step for a flawed previous product. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to have to cook my yeah. fake meat. Come on. Yeah. And at least I know by eating the fake meat, there's no prospect of me like, yeah. like poisoning myself. Yeah. Right? The cooking is That's just warming it up. It's edible already. <laughs> yeah. It's like I you don't... could get a tapeworm from eating this fake burger. <laughs> yeah. Ultra realistic. <laughs> yeah, you, you there's the ultra realism. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe I'm going to go uh, a five. Five? Yeah. Uh, like you... Like, and like, uh, like ten would be like. Oh, this is a Whoa, It's the only thing I ever want to eat, and like okay. one, like it, it induces like vomiting. <laughs> Five. All right. Yeah. yeah, I went home and I tried one of them, and everyone was saying like, "This tastes just like a real burger," and I've never had a real burger, and I was like, "Everyone says they're really good." That was it. It's just like <laughs> greasy. Like, give me a break. I don't know. That's me showing my soy side. So I don't know how comfortable I am with that. Might cut that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You are listening to two soy boys. <laughs> you're def- if, you, if you haven't figured it out by now, <laughs> you're definitely listening to two soy boys. Or, uh, yeah, oat milk lads, anyway. Oat milk lads. Definitely oat milk, the oat milk has been getting drunk today, folks. Um, okay, I'm going to cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> what were we saying, Dan? Mm, me. Love go- I'm going to have a steak tonight. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> I hope I never lower myself to the left. If you're <laughs> the someone who's like, yeah, if you're someone who's like, bacon is the best food ever, I'm just going to say, I hope I never lower myself. And I'm going to say it loud and clear. I hope I never lower myself to being one of you freaks. Mm. 
Sorry. But like, come on. <laughs> it's bacon. I've had bacon. It's not that... It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just... I get angry. You know people who eat meat? <laughs> now I'm getting mad. <laughs> now people who eat meat are always and like... Jack's now so hungry. <laughs> yeah. Gonna get mad. I'm complaining about food. <laughs> you know people who always eat meat are like... Jack's forgotten to eat, so he's going to complain about other people's eating habits. <laughs> yeah, sons of... It, they're always like, oh, vegetarians, vegans, you guys talk about eating meat so much. I can't go five seconds without seeing someone talking about bacon. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand bacon. Yeah, come on. It smells really horrible. It's not the best. Yeah. It's like, come on. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Um, all right, folks. Well, that's been two people complaining about meat for the last 15 minutes. Hope you've enjoyed that. Um, it's been very rare for us to not like something that we've read. And so why break that tradition now? This was good. Folks, go read it. We'll say it again. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Uh, Harry Draper. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Very gaunt, very Nosferatu looking kind of guy. (laughs) Wow, he's that gaunt? Jeez. (laughs) As someone who is perhaps gaunt myself, I I, uh, appreciate more gaunt visibility. (laughs) That has nothing to do with me not eating meat before you say it. Um, All right. Let's end oh, it. Oh, God, let's finish. Let's, God, let's finish. Let's goddamn finish. The mics finish. are still hot. We're just, <laughs> just going to walk away. Yeah. You hear the goddamn bells in the background. All right. Um, this, uh, uh, this has been your left calm in disguise, uh, Jack. And uh, we'll, I will see you next time, at least. Dan, will you? <laughs> will I see you next time? Will you see me next time? I hope. Can I see you this time? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. Um, I don't know what my allegiances are. <laughs> I, I commit to socialism from below. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. It's socialism from above. <laughs> I almost made a Pradhan joke. All right. My name's Ben Jack. Pradhan, thanks so much for listening. All right. Bye bye. <laughs>